Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. Get smarter about things like saving on travel, because spending less on airfare means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancier dinner, too. Boosting your credit score, since good credit is like a real-life cheat code. And saving for an emergency fund, because life is like a good movie. It loves a good plot twist. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. The Peter Schiff Show. The U.S. dollar continued its decline today. The dollar index falling to a fresh eight-month low I think we closed about 95.60 on the dollar index. The dollar is being led lower by a surging euro. The euro is actually at a 12-month high against the U.S. dollar. We're now trading just below 114 and a half. Remember, it wasn't too long ago the euro was down, what, I think it was down around 105-ish or so, and everybody was talking parity with the dollar, right? All the traders were short the euro, and I was saying that the euro was bottom, that the euro was going to rise, And the rise is just now beginning for the euro. I think there's a lot more to this move. Of course, other currencies are also following the euro's lead. But ultimately, I think they will surpass it. I mean, the euro is not my favorite currency. I do think that there are other currencies that are ultimately going to enjoy even bigger gains against the dollar than the euro, which means those other currencies will also be gaining against the euro. But you have so much short interest in the euro So many people betting on the demise of the Eurozone. And look, I still believe that the Eurozone is going to fall apart. It's just not going to fall apart as soon as a lot of people thought. I think that the U.S. is going to have its day of reckoning before the Eurozone has its. But now that, you know, the political turmoil has kind of settled down, some of these elections have come and gone, that is removing this cloud of skepticism and fear from the euro and now people are starting to move into the euro and out of the dollar and again this is across the board dollar weakness that is going to accelerate remember the dollar has a substantial ill-gotten gain that it needs to surrender the dollar got bid up for years based on a misunderstanding of the true state of the u.s economy of the efficacy of fed monetary policy the market was factoring in far more rate hikes than the Fed was capable of delivering. Meanwhile, the economy is rolling over. The Fed is getting closer to the end of its tightening cycle. And the ECB is closer to the end of its easing cycle to the beginning of a new tightening cycle. In fact, I mentioned on my last podcast, uh, Draghi's statement about the deflationary threat subsiding, about uh, the drop in inflation being transitory. And the euro rose on that. Well, the very next day, the ECB went out to do damage control. I mean, why is it damage that your currency is going up, right? That's the perverse world of central bankers where weakness uh, is strength and strength is weakness. But they came out to try to get traders to stop buying the euro, right? And they said that traders are making a mistake reading anything in to Draghi's comments about a change of policy. Well, why shouldn't they read something into his comments? I mean, he's, he said what he said, and obviously he said it for a reason. So people need to pay attention to what a central banker says. And in fact, Draghi didn't come out 
and qualify his statement. So, of course, the damage control was ignored. So despite the fact that the ECB came out and tried to put a lid on euro buying, euro buying continued and it's continuing here again today. And probably weakness in the stock market is part of the appeal of the euro. And it's not just the stock markets, the global bond markets that are falling. Interest rates are rising around the world as traders start to brace from the unwinding of all the liquidity that the ECB and central banks have been pouring into the market. Now they're going to be taking it out. I've been mentioning it didn't make any sense to me that in the light of all these comments that the stock markets weren't coming under more pressure. And now we're starting to see that pressure build. The only segment really of the markets that was strong today were the financials because the banks uh, feel they're going to benefit from higher interest rates, from higher spreads. And here, you know, we had those bogus stress tests where the Federal Reserve supposedly stress tested all the banks. And what do you know? They all passed. And so that is creating a bid in the banks. But again, I've said this before. When it comes to higher interest rates and banks, be careful what you wish for because you just might get it. I don't think that higher interest rates are going to end up being a positive for the banks. I think they're going to end up being a huge negative because higher interest rates will impale the value of their collateral. It will result in loan losses and defaults and ultimately losses for the banks because they will not be able to recoup what they lost. And I'm sure the Fed didn't really study the type of stress that these institutions realistically might have to overcome, the government would have some rosy scenario that they would see as the worst case scenario. But in fact, the worst case scenario is actually far worse uh, than is being stress tested. But in any event, that has caused a bounce in the financials. But despite that, you still had a triple digit loss in the Dow today. The Dow Jones was down 167 points. NASDAQ actually had a weaker day. I think it closed off about 90 points, although I saw it down intraday, maybe about 115 or something. So we did have a bit of a rally before the close, although I think we sold off again into the close, but we didn't close on the lows of the day, but still a very weak day. Gold did not have much of a rally or any rally today. It was down three or four bucks, and gold stocks were down as much as you know, tech stocks potentially today. I mean, they were down a couple of percent. I think the tech sector was the weakest sector. That rotation is continuing. And I've been talking about those moves ever since that huge technical reversal day that we had the day the NASDAQ made a new all-time record high. But probably one of the most interesting elements of today's trading, and it is very reminiscent as far as I'm concerned of the, the, the dot-com boom of uh, the 1990s, and that was the IPO of a company called Blue Apron Holdings. And if you're not familiar with Blue Apron, and believe me, I wasn't even familiar with them either until uh, until they went public. I mean, I've never used the service. In fact, I've never even heard of it. Uh, but I mean, a lot of people have. I mean, it's not like it's some obscure, completely unknown company. But they went public today at $10 a share, and at the valuation, the market is saying this company is worth close to $2 billion, right? The company started five years ago, five-year-old company. It's already worth $2 billion. It's only been in existence for five years. And in fact, the IPO represented a down round. And if you don't know what a down round is, 
Normally, when companies are raising money, every time they raise money, they do it at a higher valuation than the previous round, right? And so people get excited because the earlier investors were making money because now later investors have put money in at a higher price. Well, a down round is when investors put new money in at a price that's lower than where previous investors invested. So you're, it's, you're, you're refinancing down, right? You're not up. Well, this IPO actually was a down round because Blue Apron raised money while it was a private company at a valuation that was actually higher than the one that they got on the IPO. Now, that's not supposed to happen, right? The IPO is supposed to be the high price where all the early investors can cash out because now the public is paying more than the private investors. Well, now you have a round where the public is paying less than some of the earlier smart money private investors. Now, the stock initially, I think it was supposed to price at a higher level, but it ended up pricing at the very lowest uh, level of expectations, $10. Now, intraday, the stock did rally back up to 11. So at one point, it was a 10% pop, which is nothing uh, for an IPO. Very disappointing when you get lucky enough to get the stock on the IPO, and then your best opportunity to sell is a 10% gain. But by the closing bell, the stock was all the way back down to 10 bucks, And that's where it closed. It closed exactly where it opened. And the only reason it didn't break 10 bucks is because you have the syndicate, right, out there with a bid trying to keep the market propped up so that they're not embarrassed to have the whole IPO collapse. Because the last thing you want is for the stock to close below the IPO price. But my money would say that this stock is going below that $10 price, maybe as early as tomorrow. I mean, there's probably going to be a wave of selling because a lot of people probably only bought the stock to flip it. And now that it's flopped, they're going to want out. And the question is, will the syndicate be able to stand behind this company to be able to maintain this valuation? But you know, the reason I think this is so reminiscent of the uh, dot-com days, you know, where you know you had these companies you know, like this going public. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, the only thing missing from Blue Apron is the sock puppet, right? Because this, the whole concept here, I mean, I'm not saying that there isn't a demand for their service, but what they're doing, anybody can do. There's nothing proprietary here. What Blue Apron does is they allow you to order ingredients to cook a meal yourself and they supply you with the recipe. Right? So you get a recipe and you get the food that you need to prepare the meal right down to measured portions of the spices that you would need. And I guess you order three meals, four meals at a time. I'm not really sure how long it takes them to deliver the meals to your house. And supposedly they have some deal with farms and stuff and maybe the food is fresh. Uh, and, and, but, but you have to cook it all yourself. You got to do all your own dishes. Um, but they'll deliver it to your house. Big deal. Big deal. That's worth $2 billion. I mean, what do they have that's proprietary? The recipes? I mean, anybody can get a recipe. Just go to any bookstore, right? Or go to Amazon, order a recipe book. There's recipes all over the place. I mean, what's that worth? I mean, the food, any market has food. I mean, if people really want to order ingredients and recipes, don't you think your typical grocery store in a neighborhood that has a website can do that same exact thing? Don't you think they can send people out to your house uh, with some food 
and some recipes for you to cook them yourself. I mean, this company lost, in the last year, it lost $55 million on this business. $55 million. They raised $300 million in the IPO. Now, how many years is that going to last before they blow through that money and have to raise some more? Because think about this, and this is what should be obvious. Forget about all the mom and pop stores that can compete in this space because anybody can do it. Didn't Amazon just buy Whole Foods? I mean, what do they have at Whole Foods? Food, right? Fresh food, organic food. Now, if people want to have somebody deliver food to their house, ingredients to make a meal along with a recipe, don't you think Amazon Whole Foods could do that? I mean, they've got all the recipe books, right? Amazon started out as a bookstore. You don't think they got any recipe books? You don't think they have recipes over there at Amazon? And they got plenty of food at Whole Foods. They got all kinds of distribution centers. Do you think there's any possible way that Blue Apron is going to compete with Amazon and Whole Foods? How is that even possible? I mean, what is the odds that somebody that is ordering food online from Blue Apron doesn't already have an Amazon account, isn't probably a member of Amazon Prime? I mean, Amazon probably has their entire client list already. What do they have to do? I mean, I mean, maybe there are some people that are thinking, well, you know, Amazon is just going to end up buying uh, Blue Apron, so I'm going to buy Blue Apron so that I can own it when Amazon buys it. Why should they buy it? They could just put it out of business. They have their whole client list. They don't need to waste two or three billion dollars. They just spent all this money buying Whole Foods. Why do they have to buy a dink company uh, like Blue Apron? They can eat Blue Apron's lunch, literally, right? They can they can out they can price them out of the market. And of course, now Blue Apron is going to have to compete with Amazon Whole Foods. And if they lost $55 million before they had to compete with Amazon Whole Foods, how much are they going to have to spend on marketing to compete with Amazon? I mean, again, they're going to blow through this money so fast it'll make your head spin. And then what? They're going to come back to Wall Street and they're going to want more money. You know, the only time Amazon might buy Blue Apron would be out of bankruptcy, although I guess they don't have any debt. So, you know, they don't technically go bankrupt. I mean, when they run out of money, I guess they could stop advertising. I don't know you know, how much money they actually lose if they don't spend any money in advertising. I think there was a year where they made some money. They made a few million bucks or something. But once people see that there's demand for this, right? Oh, people really want to have, you know, ingredients and recipes delivered to their door so they can do all the cooking themselves, but follow this recipe and, you know, not have to, you know, waste their time going down to the grocery store and buying the food themselves. They just have somebody deliver it to their house I mean, there's going to be a million different people competing for this market. I mean, it's not easy to create a company that has $2 billion of value. I mean, $2 billion. These guys have been in existence for five years. And now what they've created is worth $2 billion? Give me a break. What did they create? What did they invent? What new revolutionary product does Blue Apron Holdings have? I mean, you would think they, they what, did they invent aprons? Did they invent food? I mean, what do they do? They're just bringing you food and bringing you recipes. I mean, what are these, like some secret recipes, the greatest recipes in the history of the world that you can't possibly cook this fantastic food unless you have these super secret, you know, recipes like, you know, the ones from Seinfeld 
uh, that the, the soup Nazi, you know, kept in that drawer in, in that armoire. Now, these are, I'm sure anybody could get these recipes. There's no big deal. This is all mania. This is all hype. This is all a bubble. This is all a bunch of investors getting into an idea and hoping they're going to cash out an IPO. Well, you know what? We got the IPO and it's, there's, no, there's no pop. And now you've got people that have had their money in this company for years. Here's their chance to get out. Who's going to want to get in? And the thing is, if this thing falls apart, there's a lot of other companies waiting in the wings, right? There's, it's like an airport. you got all these planes that want to take off. Well, when this one, Blue Apron, takes off and it crashes and burns, what's going to happen to all those other airplanes waiting in the queue, right? These are all, they call these companies the unicorns, right? Unicorns, because they're not public, you don't really see them but they've got billion dollar market caps, right? They've been, investors have given them money, invested in the companies based on a valuation of a billion dollars or more. There's a whole bunch of these guys, but they all have one thing that they're waiting for, their IPO, their opportunity to sell to the public and cash out and make money. And now if this blue apron takes off and then crashes and burns, that is going to really hurt the market for these private companies that are would-be IPOs in the future when investors get stung, when they get burned by this. And who knows, it could be a bigger wake-up moment for the entire stock market. So we'll see what happens on Friday. Now, we had a very weak uh, close you know, trading day in the market today, and the Fed is still talking tough. And again, I think that what ultimately stops the market from falling is going to be the Fed. It's going to be some admission on the part of the Fed that they're done, right? That the U.S. economy is softening or whatever it is, but they're going to have to dial back expectations for future rate hikes. And that will prop up the U.S. stock market, but that will put the nail in the coffin of the U.S. dollar. Because the minute the Fed has to save the stock market, it does it by sacrificing the dollar, right? Because if the ECB, if they're tightening and now the Fed is easing, well, I mean, that is a one-two punch to the dollar. You know, we did get the GDP numbers that came out today, the final number for Q1. And remember, I was speculating that maybe they would lower it based on a lot of the weak economic data. And once again, they increased it. They went from 1.2, which was the last estimate, up to 1.4. Now, the reason for this, because, you know, you watch the media and they talk about, oh, oh, see, they're upping their GDP to 1.4. Like, that's actually a big deal. But the reason is they took the deflator which is supposedly what the inflation rate was. And it was initially reported, or the most recent report, was 2.2. And so now they revised that to only 1.9. The government said, well, inflation wasn't as bad as we thought. We thought prices were up 2.2%. Instead, they were up 1.9. So that's why the GDP went up. If they hadn't changed it at all, if they had left the inflation assumption the same, if the deflator had stayed 2.2%, Instead of revising up to 1.4, they would have revised down to 1.1. So it's really not more growth, it's less inflation. But I don't believe any of these inflation numbers anyway. I think I think the 2.2 number was too low. So the 1.9 number is even lower. Now also with inside the internals of the GDP report, they did notch up their estimate from consumer spending from up 0.6 to up 1.1. That was a pretty big increase, but it was offset partially by a decrease in business investment. So businesses invested less while consumers spent more, which means the quality 
of that GDP actually went down because you want business investment. That's real economic growth. Consumer spending money doesn't mean the economy is growing. You know, that's, you're just using your wealth, right? You're spending. It's the, the production side of the economy that is more important, not, not the consumption. I mean, you're looking at the, uh, at, the, uh, at the cart when you should be looking at the horse. So the, to me, the economy is weak. And of course, I still think they're going to continue to revise down their estimates for Q2 GDP. Hey, more news again today on this ever-evolving healthcare saga uh, going on. I mean, first of all, the Republicans are now are caving in. I talked about this on one of the earlier podcasts about how the media and the left are trying to spin this as just a redistribution of wealth from the poor to the rich because they are cutting money for Medicaid, right? while they are cutting taxes on the wealthy, those Obamacare taxes that kicked in on incomes of 250000 or more, they were going to repeal those. And of course, it was all being spun. This is taking from the poor and giving to the rich. Look, you're not taking from the poor when you steal less from the rich. You're taking from the rich in the first place. And if you take less from the rich, that doesn't count as giving to the rich. You know, it's like you're not redistributing wealth for the poor. The poor doesn't have the wealth. You have to take it in order to redistribute it. So if you just leave it to the people who earned it, nothing's been redistributed. But this is in a Wellingen world. They flip it all around. But the optics didn't look good. And now the Republicans are caving. And now they're saying, okay, in our supposed uh, Obamacare repeal bill, we are not going to repeal those taxes on the rich. So now those taxes are going to stay there. And of course, part of the problem is they weren't really repealing Obamacare. They were just repealing the taxes. They were leaving most of Obamacare in check, which was one of the problems. That's why they should repeal the whole thing. Then they couldn't be accused of this because they would just be repealing the entire bill, lock, stock, and barrel, right? And so everything would go all at once. But instead, they're repealing parts of it, but leaving other parts. And one of the parts they were choosing to repeal were the higher taxes imposed on the rich. So now, even if they get this repeal through, those taxes are still going to be there. And I guess, you know, the markets probably were already anticipating that, you know, those taxes might go away when they were so excited about repeal and replace. But now, either way, those taxes are still there, which, of course, is just going to complicate any future tax reform or tax cuts, because now they're still going to have those taxes, which which haven't been cut. Now, again, when it comes to health care, though, and insurance, I still can't see Anybody talking about or writing about the 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 utter hypocrisy of all this and the, the idiocy of trying to turn insurance companies into healthcare providers? I mean, doesn't anybody know what insurance is, what the industry is all about? Insurance companies sell insurance, right? It's health insurance. And who buys health insurance? In theory, healthy people, they're insuring their health. That means you buy the policy while you're healthy. It's not called sick insurance. It's not for the sick. It's health care insurance or health insurance for the healthy. In case you lose your health, that is the risk. Hey, I'm healthy now, but what if I get sick? And of course, I'm not worried if I just, you know, catch a cold or, you know, because I can afford to, to take care of that myself. But what happens if I get really sick? What happens if I get cancer, right? Oh, God, that could be really expensive. I I might not have enough money. All right, well, let me buy some cheap insurance because, uh, you know, I'm probably not going to get cancer. 
But if I do, I sure better have a way of paying for my treatment. And you have lots of other people who think the same way. They're healthy. They're probably not going to get cancer. But they buy a little insurance just in case. That's what insurance is for. It's for healthy people to buy just in case they get sick. But the way the media spins it or the politicians, insurance is what sick people buy when they're already sick. And they have high medical bills. And now they go buy insurance to pay their medical bills. No, what kind of idiotic business is that? Hey, I'm going to start a business, and all I do is I pay people's bills, and I charge them insurance, which is cheap, and I, I, char- I, I sell this cheap insurance policy, and then right away I start paying medical bills that are way higher than the premiums I'm collecting. I mean, nobody would go into that business. So why doesn't somebody come on television and actually defend the insurance companies? You know, I read these articles again. It's, oh, we, we don't want to go back to the horrible days when insurance companies could deny coverage to people just because they're sick. Well, what do you expect them to do? I mean, come on. Of course they're going to deny coverage to you if you're already sick. Again, just like a fire insurance company is not going to give you coverage on a home that is already burnt to the ground. <laughs> no, no auto insurance company is going to give you coverage for an accident that you already had. And this, everybody accepts that. But for some reason, healthcare is different. For some reason, we expect a healthcare company that is a profit-seeking company to sell somebody a policy when they're already sick so that they can start putting in claims the day they sign up. I mean, health insurance companies are trying to insure people that they hope will never put in a claim. Why do they want to insure somebody who will start filing claims from day one. So this, the absurdity, the only person out there on television who is saying anything decent is Rand Paul. And Rand is getting a lot of press. I mean, I'm seeing him. He's getting interviewed on every single time. I mean, I guess he's the only Republican that actually opposes this on principle. And one of the things that Rand has been saying is that he believes in freedom, right? And freedom means that you have the freedom to choose the type of health insurance that you want. You can buy the plan that's right for you, not the plan that the government demands that you buy. You can buy coverage for the things that you want coverage on. You can exclude things that you don't want coverage for. You can pick your deductible. You can pick your copay. And I completely agree. We need the freedom. Americans need to be free to make their own choices. But if you believe that people should have the freedom to buy or not to buy health insurance, and if they buy it, to buy the policy that they want, the policy that works for them, with the features that they want, with the coverage that they believe necessary and important. If you believe in all that, then you also have to believe that insurance companies have the right to deny you coverage for whatever reason they want, that they have the right to price their policies based on the risk that you impose on their shareholders. Each person individually represents a risk. Remember I said on an earlier podcast that whenever you buy insurance, you are making a bet with the insurance company. You're betting that you get sick and they're betting that you stay healthy. Well, when they make the bet, they want to know the type of odds that they need to lay. They want to study it. Just like, you know, if you're going to make a bet on a horse race, you might take a look at the horse and the jockey and the weather conditions and try to handicap the race and figure out, you know, what the real odds are based on whatever information you've got. Well, an insurance company is the same thing. They're going to take a look at the person that they're asking to insure, and they're going to think, okay, well, how old is this person? 
what what you know what kind of history of disease do they have you know you know what's their demographic what kind of job do they have i mean all kinds of statistics to try to figure out how likely it is that this person that they're being asked to insure is actually going to get sick and put in a claim and the higher your risk the more they're going to charge you right now the way it works in a competitive market is you have more than one insurance company, right? You have lots of insurance companies handicapping your risk and which policy you're going to buy. You're going to buy the, the one where the insurance company gives you the best odds, where they have the lowest premium. So the insurance company just can't charge whatever they want. They will charge the lowest price that they think they can charge to win your business, but they don't want to price the product too low that they lose money. Right? So there's all kinds of competitive forces that would be in a free market that would make sure that insurance premiums were always as low as possible relative to each applicant's risk level. Now, you know what Rand Paul, one of the things he's talking about, if you are a person, let's say, that has some health issues, and so individually you're going to be expensive to insure, the way you can get around that is by joining a group. Right. Because if you're part of a group, all these group policies just have a rating for everybody. Right. And they say, OK, you have somebody in your group. If they're this age or they're this sex, then they all pay the same price. There is no uh, health exam. It doesn't matter what their pre-existing conditions are. If you're in the group, then you're going to get coverage. So some of the people that have some of these problems could overcome them to the extent that they could become a member of a group. And then as part of that group, one of the benefits can be that they can avail themselves of the group rate. And what happens is the group, because it's a much bigger buyer, can negotiate a discount on the insurance because it is covering this huge group. And of course, if the group includes a few people with pre-existing conditions, well, it's okay because there's so many other people in the group that don't have them. And the insurance company can offer a more competitive price because they want the group. But when you come to an insurance company by yourself, then, well, the insurance company can easily measure your risk, right, relative to and figure out what kind of premium they have to charge you to make that bet worthwhile. Because if they don't think they're going to win the bet, why take it, right? They only make the bet because they think they're going to win, right? Nobody makes a bet that they that they know they're going to lose, right? Now, when you, when you buy your insurance, you hope you lose that bet because you don't want to get sick, right? But you buy the policy in case you do. But the insurance company is selling you the policy because they hope you don't need it because they want to keep the premium. They're not trying to lose money. But nobody wants to talk about this, again, except maybe Rand Paul, the only guy out there. And so at least we got him. He's the only person that's out there that is saying anything uh, of any significance uh, about the problems with this bill. And that's probably why he's getting so much airtime because nobody else has the guts to stand up and tell the truth. So hopefully... Uh, this is going to help raise Rand's stature uh, in the Senate. Hopefully it makes him a, a better candidate uh, for president in the future. I know 2020 is a great year for an ophthalmologist uh, to run for office. And I know generally a sitting president does not get a challenge from within his own party. And I know Rand has been, you know, buddying up to Donald Trump. He's you know, been playing golf with him. So I don't know if he's going to run against them in 2020 or not. Uh, but I do think that the economy is going to be weak enough that he may get a challenge, just like, you know, Ronald Reagan challenged Gerald Ford uh, when he was a sitting president. I know, but who who, who challenged uh, George Bush? Pat Buchanan. So, you know, every once in a while, somebody will, will challenge an incumbent uh, president of their own party. But who knows? 
there are a lot of people that are betting that Donald Trump isn't going to finish out the term. I mean, I think he's going to finish his term, but it's possible he might he might not run for a second term. I mean, he might he might decide that, you know, one term is enough and, and just voluntarily not run for reelection. I really have no idea. I mean, just not running might be better than running and losing. Right. So, you know, he may look at the polls and decide that he doesn't need another four years of, uh, of the White House. But we'll see. But in the meantime, I am I am uh, I am glad that Rand Paul Rand, <laughs> Rand Paul is out there. And saying the things that he's saying, because nobody else is saying it. I mean, I'm saying it, but I'm just saying it on my podcast. At least he's saying it uh, on national television, on all kinds of outlets. And uh, and so at least we got one, you know, one one senator out there who gets it.